Open your Bible, please, to the book of Genesis once more as we continue studying this vital book. I might tell you, I'm not sure exactly how much longer we're going to be with Genesis. It was never my intent that this was a series on the whole book. It was an intent to do early foundational chapters, particularly chapters 1 to 3, and we finish consideration of chapter 3 today. I do want to see some things in chapter 4 for certain, and I'm going to decide in a week or two just uh, what we do from there. We may take a break and come back to Genesis at some later time. But for now, I read in Genesis chapter 3. Our concern is with verses 16 through the end, but I think I'll back up because it would be helpful to set the context if It's been two weeks since we looked at it, and also some may not have even been here then. So Genesis 3, I'll begin at verse 8, but 16 and following are our concern today. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will Greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's Word. It is the source of everything we know about our God, and we believe it is from Him and true in all that it teaches. 
In 2008, as they've done the reviews of events the last week or so, I was reminded in reading the local paper that one of Lancaster's worst traffic accidents occurred this past year as an intoxicated young woman drove the wrong way down a Route 30 exit ramp and struck an oncoming vehicle head-on, killing the three men in that vehicle. As that young woman sits in prison today, I'm sure that she reflects, if not daily, at least often, what a huge difference one night of too many drinks had upon her whole life and on three others, not to mention the families involved. The amount of alcohol in one person's bloodstream can seem like a very small matter, but it's sponsored, in that case and many others, terrible widespread effects. And that's how it is with many mistakes and sins in our lives. There are times when we seem like we get away with it. The effect of a sin or a mistake is small and local. But other times, the ripple effect of our actions can be absolutely catastrophic. We've studied Genesis to see satanic temptation that has challenged the truthfulness of God's Word here in chapter 3. We've witnessed the instant guilt that sent the man and woman hiding and running from God, blaming each other, making fig leaves to cover themselves up in a futile way. And there it has seemed, as we've looked at it, that this beautiful park, this wonderful, blessed place that God made for humanity has become more like a moral prison containing no place for them to hide. We could diagnose sin many ways, as we've seen it here. It's a breach of trust. It's a revolt of unbelief. It's an assertion of autonomy. It's a rejection of God's sovereign rule. And it's a break from fellowship with God. We are being taught here that sin corrupts our entire nature. No part of our lives is unaffected by it. It may seem a small thing, taking some kind of fruit and eating it in defiance of God. But it was not a small thing. It was a thing of vast and terrible importance. Two weeks ago, in the midst of all this darkness and shadows, I highlighted Genesis 3.15, and I just want to remind you of that, that even as God was pronouncing His curse upon Satan, He made this wonderful promise that's called the first gospel In all of the Bible, as we can read back and see in light of all that happens afterward, that he was talking about and promising something Moses could not have understood as he put pen to paper, but he was writing under the influence of the Spirit, and he spoke about the seed of the woman who would crush the head of Satan. That wonderful promise that first tells us of Christ and what he would do. And now we're examining the aftermath from verse 16 onward in this text, the aftermath of what we call the historic fall. And theologians capitalize the F because it is an event of such importance that it draws a line of demarcation down the middle of human history after which nothing is the same again. 
Blaise Pascal, the early scientist, also a great Christian man, wrote one time, I quote him, what sort of a freak is man? How monstrous he is, how chaotic, how paradoxical. Man, Pascal said, is judge over all things and at the same time an earthworm. He is repository of all truth and a sinkhole of doubt. He is both the glory and the refuse of the universe. What a paradox man is. By the action of one man and woman, the total condition of sin infiltrated world history and all human beings. We call this original sin. It was the first but it was original in the sense that it is repeated all the time by every one of us. Romans 5.12 gives the sentence on it saying, Sin entered the world through one man, and death came in by sin. And in this way death came to all men. And it doesn't stop there. It says, For all have sinned. It's not as though something unfair was visited on you. You have done what Adam did. You have done what Eve did. Theirs was just the role at the entrance gate when sin first came in. We face the conclusions that the Bible draws about our whole nature as a result of the fall. Places like Isaiah 53, 6 that say in familiar language, all we, without exception, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, turning every one to his own way. Further, we could hear from a passage like Romans 3.10 and following. There's no one righteous, not even one. They have all gone out of the way. All have become unprofitable. There is no one that does good, not even one. There is no one who can point to their life and say, well, I know humanity in some general way is sinful, but I'm the exception. You can't do that, and you know you can't. And so from Genesis 3 onward, sin casts a deep shadow on what we are and what we do. It's not just about sins, individual acts. Be careful of that way of looking at it that just says sins, you know, this little lie over here or this little act that I can identify over there. You need to think about sin as a condition in which you live, a condition in which guilt is felt, death is feared, Deceit is practiced on a regular basis, and a nameless anxiety clings to us that no device of either psychology or religion knows how to remove. Now let's go to the first of two main points I want to draw from our text here in Genesis three sixteen to 24. The first is to see, as this text so ably demonstrates, how the fall radically affects even our basic roles that we have in the world as men and women. What men are, what women are, are affected and impacted by the fall. Now let me say, by way of a general comment first, that I don't know what comes into your mind when we think about a curse. Maybe you have a sort of a mystical idea of it. A lot of children and young people read Harry Potter books today, the playful imaginative dealing with with magic and pronouncing of curses. Well, maybe you think this is sort of God like a great wizard, you know, saying, Adam, 
You did bad. And so, zap, I'll get you. And here's how I'll get you. But that isn't it. It isn't a magic wand kind of treatment. It isn't a spanking delivered as punishment. It is more an idea that God is saying, here's how reality is going to be experienced in light of what you have chosen. Your choice made this inevitable. It's not God who created these consequences of spiritual death. Spiritual death wasn't his doing. It was the evil one's doing. Yes, God permitted it, but it wasn't God who put these kinds of painful, toiling things into the world that he's going to pronounce here. One writer says, and I think he's very correct, that that it's better if we would see it that the Lord is no longer going to shield us by his protecting grace in the same way as before. And now the natural consequences of acts are going to be felt in hard ways. The woman is singled out, first of all. She's singled out in her fundamental role both as mother and as wife. I will greatly increase your pain in childbirth. I don't have to say anything very original when I say that being a mother is a core experience of a woman's life if she's physically able to have children. God had said, be, be fruitful, multiply. This was a blessed thing. You are the, the heads of a whole race that I intend to see multiplied. Later, he's going to say to Abraham, your descendants will be like the grains of sand and like the stars in the sky. It's a wonderful thing to think about humanity coming forth from the first man and the first woman. It's a blessing. But now in the very act of giving birth, the woman is going to experience groans and anguish and pain. I've been there. Many of you women have been there. Many of you husbands have been there. And husbands, we don't know what they go through except that our hand gets squeezed to death but they go through something we can't understand. Don't ever pretend you can understand it. You can't. And actually, there are interpreters who look at this and see a broad interpretation, not just the physical pain here, but perhaps even the idea of the emotional pain that being a mother involves in the world. Is it a great thing to be a mother? Of course it is. There are many wonderful, blessed, joyful things about it. But there's also pain. Mothers follow their children through the whole process of maturation, and, and often when the child is, is 19 or 25 or, or 32, they're experiencing some of their greatest pain as they see their offspring rebelling or making bad decisions. And it may last a lifetime, things that a mother has to experience. Now remember, Genesis 3.15 had said, it's not all bad, of course, because it is the seed of the woman who's going to be a savior who will crush the head of Satan. So there's a sense in which some have suggested that Eve would be watching and, and that even, by the way, I'll give you a little hint ahead of time as uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. When Cain is born, Eve says, with the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Some believe that should be translated the man. Here he is. I've had him. This must be the Savior. Well, of course, Cain was something else entirely. That's another story. But 
Every mother would think, what a blessing, what a wonderful thing to be able to bear children in the world. And yet, as they're brought into the world, that blessing is tinged with anguish in the process of birth and even afterwards through life as she is reminded that her child is born into a broken world. And in all the innocence and and perfection that little children seem to have, we all love their fingernails and their toes and all that great stuff, they're born sinners. They surely are. Not one of them is not. Now, it's a last statement of verse 16 that relates to Eve that is a bit different. Not her role as mother, but more her role as wife. It's a bit mysterious, the statement. As you look at it, you might think, what does that mean? When God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I realized this morning as I was reviewing my notes that I could have a sermon on that. It's that controversial. It's that difficult. But I will tell you what at least the mainstream understanding of those words has been throughout the history of Orthodox biblical interpretation. There are some other ideas, some other alternatives, but I side with those who think that what is being said here is, Eve, you're you are going to desire your husband in such a way that you actually want to conquer him. You want to master him. You've already demonstrated that in what you've done is implied. Now, we could spend time reviewing this discussion. Remember what Eve was created for. I emphasized this many weeks ago as we looked at chapter 2. As God said, 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, not an inferior, not at all. A helper is one who completes, one who comes alongside, who performs a very vital function. And again, she's called that in verse 20, for Adam no suitable helper was found. And so here is this one who Adam is in some way supposed to lead, not as a dictator, not in a domineering fashion, not tyrannically, not violently, not disrespectfully, but still there's a role of leadership. And it appears that what this is saying here at the end of 3.16 is that the woman is going to desire to disrupt that leadership, to take it over, to usurp it. And what is that based on? You say, well, how do you come up with that? Well, the main evidence that's brought forth, if you look ahead in your Scripture, in 4.7 we have the same word, for desire, where Cain is being spoken to by God. And it says that sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. It desires to bring you down, to destroy you, to disrupt. And it is thought, on the basis of that and other uses of the word, that that's what we have here, too, in Genesis 3. Now, you might think, well, that sounds kind of like the male chauvinist approach to things. It makes a woman look bad. So I'll quote a female source, a woman biblical scholar. Susan Foe, F-O-H, is a trained scholar in Hebrew and a reliable biblical scholar who respects the Word of God. And here's what she said about Genesis 3.16b, quote, The woman will have the desire to possess or control disputing the headship of her husband, and from this point onward, the husband will almost have to fight to maintain his proper leadership. 
Now, that headship is implied again in Genesis 2. It's not something that suddenly comes into being here when it says he will rule over you. In fact, what he's doing also has a negative cast to it. What you have here is actually the inauguration of what we call the battle of the sexes. The woman trying to lead and the man in order to have the role that God desired he would have of gentle, respectful leadership has to fight back and has to domineer. And what you've got is a conflict, which God never intended. That's why Ephesians 5 can be viewed as a radical call of God. That great passage, you hear it almost every wedding. Husbands, love your wives as you love your own body, as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself. You see, Ephesians 5 is a call to go back to the way it was supposed to be. Lead your wife by self-sacrifice, by gentleness. Use your strength in a remarkable and gentle way as Christ did to serve your wife. But that's hard to do, of course, ever since the fall. Because the fall is what changed that phrase in the marriage vows, to love and to cherish, into the unspoken word, to desire and to dominate, which is what is often going on. Now, still then, under this first point of how the fall radically affects our basic roles, we turn from the woman to the man. And 3.17 and to 19 turns to Adam. What's his fundamental role? Not to bear children, of course. He's addressed as the provider, as the one who brings bread, brings food to the family, and takes care of its well-being. Now, of course, I understand the change of economic status today, and there are many cases where the woman is the breadwinner. Let's not get into that. Let's look at what's said here. And man is addressed here as the provider, and here's what God says. Because you listen to your wife, cursed, it doesn't say cursed are you, does it? It says cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all your days. Thorns and thistles will spring up, and by the sweat of your brow you will get food. Adam was supposed to be the loving leader. Instead, he was the spineless follower. And God puts main responsibility. This is another indication of his leadership. God did not hold Eve up and say, I blame it all on you. It's the man. When the New Testament speaks, it says, through a man, Adam, sin came in. Through the one who was supposed to lead. And that's the one God holds responsible. Now, isn't it an interesting irony that their sin, as far as a specific circumstance is concerned, came how? By eating. Eating in disobedience. And what does God say the curse is going to be? Well, you have to eat to be healthy and to survive, and the very act of feeding yourself is no longer going to be, you know, sort of delightfully plucking fruit off every tree and just walking around in this garden that's been made so abundant, now you're going to have to really work. By the way, work wasn't invented as part of the curse. Adam was a tender, a supervisor of the garden before. You might say he was demoted from management to labor by the fall. Suddenly, he's not just managing a place that is orderly and beautiful and perfect. Now, He's sweating and toiling as hard as he can to make a living. Henry Morris is a scientist, a Ph.D. scientist, who 
also has a great interest in Genesis and wrote a, a very useful commentary on the book. He makes an interesting suggestion. Morris says, it's not as if God suddenly created thorns and weeds, which never existed before. But he only needed to remove his orderly control of natural processes in order for what we call plant mutations to occur so that the unhealthy and nuisance plants would proliferate and choke out the good plants. Job chapter 1 has the observation where it says, Does not man have hard service on the earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man? And we can expand this way beyond gardening and way beyond farming, can't we? To the whole economic realm. Why is there so much strife all the time between labor and management? Why is the economic marketplace such a difficult place to make your way forward and to work with people who cooperate with you or to find the personalities with whom you can mesh in doing a particular job? Why is it so hard to find a job when you don't have one? You see, the economic implications all spin out from the fact that work and the whole economy becomes a place of toil and hardship instead of ease and comfort. By the way, Romans chapter 8 later on will imply, and other passages in the New Testament imply, but Romans 8.22 may be the key of it, that says the whole, what we call the biosphere, the, the planet, the atmosphere, the whole living realm is affected by the fall. And all of a sudden, Paul can write in Romans 8 and say, the creation itself is groaning as if in pains of childbirth up to the present time. What we call the ecological or environmental crisis comes from the fall, comes from the way we now abuse a planet. Instead of using it benevolently, now it's almost as if the earth and the air and the waters are our enemies, and we are the despoilers who come to ruin and to leave behind long-term consequences in the whole environment. And this, we believe, will only be worked out and finally changed in what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth after Christ's final return. Well, mankind and woman alike are fundamentally changed in their roles as a woman and as a man by the fall. But now my only other point today is a second point to tell you that even in this dark circumstance and in the curse being announced, it may seem like everything's doom and gloom here, but there are indicators in the closing verses of this fateful chapter called Genesis 3 that God's grace is working and is looking forward to better things. And so secondly, I would call what we look at now as the first steps towards divine redemption. There's a strange item in Genesis 3.21. It's so odd, it just seems inserted there, and you, you puzzle over it perhaps as you read the flow of this, when it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That is one of these blessed statements that ought to shine off the page for you the way 3.15 does. There's no better indicators of God's grace in Genesis 3 than verse 15 and verse 21. 
like many things in these three chapters, these, these are events, you know, the press wasn't there to witness what was happening. God had to give this to Moses because there, uh, you know, Adam was no longer alive and there was probably the oral tradition passed down through generations. But God had to stir up the mind of his student, student Moses to write this and record it. And I wonder if even Moses fully understood the implications of everything he wrote here. What happened exactly? Did God go out and kill a couple of deer and skin them and tan the hides? I, I can't tell you what happened. I don't have that. It, and that's true of a lot of things in Genesis 1 to 3. The serpent speaking and and how the woman was created out of a rib. The, the symbolic language is important. And yet these are real events, real history that we're studying here, not fiction, not legends. Somehow we're being told that animals died to make leather clothing that was better than fig leaves, and if animals died, of course, blood was shed. And who shed that blood? God did. You see, all the clever religious ways that we try to cover ourselves up with fig leaves are a little bit like you going on down to the car dealer right now when it's a great time to buy a car and saying, I want to buy a car. Great, we're glad to have you. Here's all the wonderful deals we have for you. And you say, I'm all prepared to pay. I'll pay cash. And you pull out of your pocket a pile of Monopoly money. And you put your Monopoly money on the table, those gold $500 bills all stacked up. And you say, here it is. I've got the $30,000 right here. And you know it won't be accepted any more than the fig leaves could be accepted as moral and spiritual coverings for the guilt and shame and rebellion of sin. They're not adequate coverings. Religion isn't a covering. Only God provides sinners with adequate coverings, and he does it by his own initiative and by his grace in the shedding of blood right here. Once again, as with 315, do you see a prophetic spotlight beam here shining forward into the history of the whole Old Testament and thousands of Old Testament altars where lambs were offered with that symbolic offering that the shedding of a vicarious substitute was offering something to cover a sin which would bring me death. All of it, of course, pointing to the cross where the greatest blood was shed not many times but once for all to spiritually clothe men and women who believe in Christ with His righteousness. How I love that line from the hymn that we sing, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless we'll stand before the throne. That begins here. Animals, blood, shed, for the covering of man and woman by the initiative of God. Keep it in mind. One more initiative of grace here doesn't seem perhaps very gracious, and yet it was. It shows that God was in control of a situation that he was going to plan and use in his way, and that is verses 22 and 24 in this closing scene of the fencing off of human access to the tree of life. Now, there was a real tree, but I'm convinced that While it was real, it wasn't some chemical in its fruit that, you know, you you ate it and zing, now you were eternal. That isn't the importance. 
The importance of the real tree is what it symbolized, the fact that God and God alone gives eternal life. We spoke weeks ago about how this Garden of Eden was actually the first temple of God, the first tabernacle of God, the first place where God dwelt and was freely accessed by man and woman, where they worshipped him, they walked with him, they spoke with him. It's obvious in the beginning of chapter 3 when the Lord seeks the man out that there's been a habit of fellowship. Where are you now? Why, why are you not here to greet me? The garden was like a temple where man came to God and worshipped him, and you could think of this tree of life as the first holy of holies, a symbol of the presence of God and the life of God bestowed to man and bestowed forever. Now, when we speak about spiritual death, we're not just talking about the death of the man's body. Adam didn't die right away. Eve didn't die right away. They hadn't even, you know, they were more than a century old and they hadn't had children yet. And the scripture tells us in real genealogies that Adam lived to an age uh, if you want to check it out, 5-5, five, five. Adam lived 930 years. In the purity of the genetic stock and the lack of diseases and all these things, we think people were long-lived until our biological lives got all the weaknesses that we have today, and lifespan was shorter. So Adam, you might say, wow, he sure didn't die very soon. He had eight centuries left to go. But he died, and he already had died inside because now he was a usurper and she was a usurper, trying to seize what was God's, trying to grasp and take for himself the control of things. And the relationship was with God. Well, maybe we won't say it was completely dead because it wasn't. Man could still worship God. But that relationship was in critical condition. It was on life support as far as man was concerned. The, the blessed relationship had been fractured. And God had to say, look, eternal life belongs to me. It's my blessing. It's going to be given as I choose to give it. It won't be yours here to just grasp and take. So we have to change your physical dwelling place. And so we have the scene that many artists, great artists, have painted frescoes and paintings and even sculptures or friezes of Adam and Eve expelled from the garden. It's a great theme of sacred art. And you can probably almost picture in your mind some of those works of art with a threatening-looking angel with a sword. And here's the man and woman sort of cowering down and looking ashamed and not wanting to look towards the garden as they slink out into a world that for them was a desert, a harsh new place. You say, what's gracious about this? You told me these are first steps towards divine redemption. Well, it is because it's telling us that God controls eternal life. And he's not necessarily denying it forever, but he's taking the reins of it and saying, you will not have it by your means. You will have it as I decide to bestow it. And indeed, he will decide to bestow it again. I make these applications as we leave this text today. One, spiritual death is an awful thing. To live in a world under the curse of God, you really could say is a fate worse than death. 
Mankind did get what Eve lusted for, the knowledge of good and evil. God acknowledged that here. In using that plural speech within the Trinity, they have become like one of us. Did you notice that in verse 22? Same thing that he said before, let us make man in our image. They've gotten this knowledge. They've gotten experiential knowledge of evil. We thought it would be a great thing. Eve thought, wow, that would be fantastic to have that. That would be better than eating a a half a gallon of my favorite ice cream. And instead of ice cream, what she got was a bowl of radioactive waste. And it not only didn't taste good, it was utterly destructive. Now, mankind didn't simply cease to exist. God could have blotted man out, couldn't he? If he was a a different God than he is, he said, "Why, why bother with them? Look at how they've gone astray. Look at everything I've done for them. Good riddance. Get rid of them. He didn't do that, and he didn't even blot out his image in us. We continue to live and reproduce and go out into the world, but now we do it in a completely altered state, especially as far as our worship and our fellowship. You know, you know what an indicator of this is? It's in the plaintive cries you find in the Psalms. How many Psalms? Not all of them. There are many Psalms that are full of rejoicing, but there are many Psalms that start out like this, Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Somebody once said, if you and God were once close and now you're not, who do you think moved? Why, O God, are you standing afar off? God didn't move. You did. Psalm 27, 9. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. Do not keep hiding from me. Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for water brooks, my soul pants and thirsts for you, God. Those are the cries of mankind in exile. Fallen man, away from paradise, out of the center of fellowship with God. Spiritual death has its effects. Another application is to have us understand that we as believers in the Word of God and as believers in Christ, new creatures in Christ, having the mind of Christ, we have a realistic understanding of what's going on with mankind. Your newspapers usually don't, by the way. There's an optimistic thing there. Well, optimism tinged by realism, but they don't really know what's wrong with mankind. And only recently, as terrorism has emerged in the world, have they been able to use the word evil anymore. Now they've had to pull that word out of storage because they need it to describe what they see. The believer in the Scripture has a realistic view of mankind and of human society. We are not idealistic about human efforts to ring in utopia in a new year or to do social improvements in a new government. Mankind is in exile from God. People are spiritually lost. And if you don't approach the situation that way, You do not understand not only the Scripture, but you don't understand the world around you. Thirdly, this. And we end on a wonderful thing. I believe Genesis 3 prepares the stage for the gospel of God's pure grace historically offered in Jesus Christ. This is a dark and tragic chapter, but thank God we read it with New Testament eyes, don't we? Man, a man called the second Adam... Jesus was born from heaven to a virgin mother. 
He is God and man in one person. He is the seed of the woman. He did crush the head of the serpent. Did sin bring a curse? As this chapter says, all right. Jesus, the second Adam, the Scripture says, became a curse for us. God in His Son went under the curse. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Did the curse bring pain in a woman's labor? All right. There isn't any pain that can be compared to that which Jesus labored under as He was bringing forth many spiritual descendants by His death and resurrection. Did the earth get filled with thorns and thistles so Adam couldn't work it so well? Well, guess what? Jesus wore those thorns on his head. Do you think that was an accident? The Bible's very consistent. He wore the symbol of the curse on his head as he died, like a crown. Did Adam have to sweat to earn bread and and meat for his table? Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood to be obedient to the task God had given him. And at his cross, righteous blood was shed to buy you a covering for eternity that is better than any stainless steel suit of armor that could be custom made for you. And if you will approach God through Christ today, guess what you will discover? You are no longer banished. You are no longer condemned. Your guilt, your shame, your restless longing have been reconciled. You will be put at peace with God. And wonder of wonders, do you know what's in the last chapter of the Bible? Revelation 22, the tree of life where the redeemed of God in Christ have free access to that symbol of eternal life that was denied in Genesis. The salvation of our God is wonderful. It's gracious. It's free. It lasts forever. And folks, I can't think of a better way for any of you to start 2009 than to accept it Trust in it. Lean on it. Surrender before it. Worship the God who offers you His redemption in Jesus Christ. The solution to the curse that is offered as far and extensively as the curse is anywhere found. Thanks be to God. Our Father, Even in these early and difficult pages, you show us the wonders of what you intend to do. We praise you, O God, that we don't have to read Genesis 3 and turn from it in utter hopelessness, rejected, thrown out, exiled. But we can see the reality of sin and all its horror and know what you had to do to send a Savior for us. Thank you for him. Train our thoughts and our eyes and our trust upon Jesus Christ and no other. That this year and all our days to come, we might honor Him and trust Him and call Him Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen.